Today's reading comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore not, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Please, you may be seated. Good morning. I have decided that I am not going to start with a joke today. I don't believe that I can reach the level that Chris has led us to, and therefore, just need to know my limitations. But I do want to share a story with you to start off this morning. You may be familiar with this story, but George Mueller was a privileged arrogant son of a lawyer and government tax collector who was known for stealing money from his parents to party, drink, and gamble. He had to be bailed out of jail by his father for staying at hotels and skipping out on the bill. But during his college years, he went to a prayer meeting and he had an encounter with the Holy Spirit that radically altered the direction of his life. He became a pastor and a missionary, but decided not to accept the regular government set salary that was uh, appointed at that time. He only chose to have what the people voluntarily donated to him. An epidemic of cholera had swept through the area, leaving many orphans. And George and his wife decided they were being called to open an orphanage for two reasons. First, to care for the needs of these neglected boys and girls, of course. But secondly, he believed that the world needed a demonstration of the power of God to answer prayer. So he determined never to publicly raise funds, but only to pray and trust that God would provide. And in his meticulous journals, Mueller recorded example after example of occasions when a need would arise and God would provide the amount needed to the exact penny exactly at the moment when it was needed without any public appeal for those funds. And over the course of their lives, Although the Mullers began with 30 orphans in their home, and that would have been a remarkable accomplishment in itself, over the course of their lives, they helped to raise over 10,000 orphans, established 117 schools with more than 120,000 students, gave away over 285,000 Bibles, and passed through donations that would be equivalent to $135 million in today's funds. And the foundation he established continues to give today. Put simply, George Mueller believed in a God who provides. 
and he proved it with his life. I want to talk to us today about this God who provides, and I just want to tell you that the Lord has been challenging my faith as I've studied this passage. He's been uh, challenging my understanding of what's being said here. I want to do some Bible study today. I want us to dig into the Old Testament context that Jesus was teaching out of when he talked uh, in this passage that Byron read for us earlier. I want us to travel back to that and then bring it forward to maybe have a new understanding of what God is calling us to in this passage through the teaching of Jesus. We are continuing on with our life along the way has been mentioned. I hope that you've picked up materials for the second leg, the second uh, 90 days or so of that uh, journey, and that you're uh, reading along with those uh, with us and seeking God. And I believe that he wants to teach us through the words of Jesus today. So why don't we ask the Lord uh, to do that right now. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It is true. May we be given greater faith to lean into that word and to walk accordingly. Thank you ahead of time for the ways that you will prove yourself to be a God who provides as we trust in you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. What I want you to see first is uh, we're going to look at the structure of this passage that was read for us and then take that, like I said, back into the Old Testament context. And so the structure that I want to point out for you here is, is a couple of transition words that stand out and give us the keys to interpreting how this passage is laid out. The first connecting word is the first word, therefore. So Jesus says, therefore, and he begins to tell these things, which means he's connecting back to what's gone before. And all I would say about that is if you missed uh, Pastor Chris's sermon last week on the God who is enough, I uh, need to go back and check that out. Jesus is building off that teaching on how God is enough for us as he goes into this uh, section in the Sermon on the Mount. But the second uh, contrasting word is the word but. It's a, it's a conjunction that Jesus says. So he, he gives these examples. He begins with, therefore, don't be anxious about these things, right? About your life, about your body, about food and drinking clothing. He gives the examples of the, of the birds and the lilies and so forth. And then he transitions in verse 33. And he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So what's going on here? When Jesus says, therefore, do not be anxious, That word anxious um, carries the idea of something that you marinate on, something that you're turning over and over in your mind, not just a passing thought, but something that occupies your focus, occupies your thinking. It is your, your mental energy is being given to this. And so he's telling us, don't be anxious. And he gives the examples of the birds and the lilies. And sometimes we see that as the whole point of what he's saying. Don't be anxious. You can have a little less worry in your life if you'll just trust God a little more. And that certainly is true, but Jesus is building towards a larger conclusion. He's saying, don't let your, let your mind be turning over and over these things. Don't let your mental focus be consumed with these things because I want you to focus on something else. Don't be filling up your mind with thoughts of food and clothing and drink and your life and your body because I want you to be seeking the kingdom of God instead and his righteousness. And so when Jesus puts these things together, he's saying, these are the things I don't want you to think about. 
But here's what I do want you to think about. You need a clear space in your mind to focus all of your energy on what? On seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So what's that mean? All right, so what, what, what is he talking about? Well, first of all, the kingdom, we know that Jesus has been preaching from the time that he was baptized and entered into his public ministry. Matthew and the other gospels tell us everywhere he went, he was preaching, repent, because the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here now. And he began this whole section, the Sermon on the Mount, telling us, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's been teaching them how to pray Our Father who art in heaven, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so Jesus has been teaching this whole message of bringing the kingdom of God uh, to bear on the world. And he links that with this word righteousness. Righteousness is is a word in in Greek that carries the whole idea of, of justice and goodness and wholeness, what is right with God and what is right in a community, what, what puts people in right relationship and reconciles them to one another. The whole concept of both my personal righteousness with God, but also right relationships in the world, the justice that God desires in a community. He's telling them, I want you to think about and seek out how does the kingdom of God come? How does the righteousness, the justice, the wholeness of God come into a community? These are the things I want you to be thinking about. And so to really dig further into what does Jesus have in mind when he brings this up, this this connection between not worrying about the things of the world, the things of the body and food and clothing and so forth, and instead thinking about kingdom and righteousness, uh, Jesus has told us at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that he is explaining how to rightly understand the Old Testament, specifically the law of Moses. He's explaining how to properly interpret it, especially the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus, by the time we reach this point in Matthew's gospel, has quoted from the book of Deuteronomy at least eight times. And so we might ask ourselves, is Jesus continuing that thought? Is there something in the book of Deuteronomy about the kingdom of God? In fact, we find that there is right in the middle of Deuteronomy. If you wanna turn there and hold your place in Matthew in, in chapter 17, and, and the surrounding passages, there are three types of people given in the law of Moses. And I want to show you how they all relate to what Jesus is talking about in this place and then bring it back to our lives. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers. And he goes on to say in verse 16, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt to acquire horses. And then he says in 17, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. But instead, what should he do? When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, keeping all the words of this law and statutes and doing them. So Jesus is talking about a kingdom. 
He's, ta- he's been teaching them from the law. The law says about a king, when you put a king in place, when God chooses a king and brings a kingdom rule, there's three things he should not do. He should not acquire military power, the horses and chariots. He should not acquire political power, the marriage alliance he's, he's talking about. He should not acquire economic power, the silver and gold. Instead, what should he focus on? He should focus on making a copy of God's law, reading it every day. Why? So that he can practice the righteousness and the justice of God through his kingdom. And then interestingly, around this passage about the king, right before it, we have another person that's mentioned in Deuteronomy. It's what's called the judge. If we go back up to 17 verse 8, it says, if any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, or one kind of legal right and another, one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that's too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go to the place the Lord your God will choose, and you shall come to the Levitical priest and to the judge who was in office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you a decision. So there's to be judgment, there's to be justice, there's to be righteousness, to hold relationships in the community when there's dispute, to bring them back together. And back at the end of verse of chapter 16 of Deuteronomy, he gives the requirements for these judges. Chapter 16, verse 18 says, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that your Lord your God is giving you. So we see a king who is to bring a righteous rule. We see a judge who is to pursue justice and righteousness. And then in the passage immediately after this, Deuteronomy chapter 18, it says of the priest, who he's already mentioned, the priest connected to the king. They were the ones who gave the law to the king. He's already connected the priest to the judge. He said, go and see the the priest and the judge together. He says this about the priest. Chapter 18, verse 1, the Levitical priest, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. So when we see these three three things together, we see a king who is not to focus on gathering wealth, but on doing the law of righteousness. We see a judge who's not to be corrupted by seeking after bribes, but to do what is just in the community. And we see a priest who is not to have an inheritance of land that would focus all of his attention on that, but, again, but instead he says the Lord himself will provide for the priest so that he can focus on his duties as priest. Now about this time you may be saying to me, Ken, that sounds great, but I'm not an Old Testament judge or priest or king. But that's where you would be wrong. Because the New Testament says this of the people of God, 1 Peter 2, 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Revelation 5, 10 says you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Luke 22, 29 and 30 says, I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2 and 3, Paul says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world if the world is to be judged by you? Are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels and much more than matters pertaining to this life? You see, if you are a believer 
In Jesus, he is the perfect king, the most righteous judge, and the, and the great high priest. And whenever you believe in him, you were placed in him so that whatever is true of Jesus is true of you. And you have been given the role in the world as God's people to bring his kingdom and his righteousness. And therefore, just as those in the past that he said, hey, I don't want you focused on inheritance, gathering money, uh, land or seeking after bribes and how you can profit. I want you focused on my law, on my kingdom and my righteousness. And in order to do that, I will personally provide for you, trust in me and you focus on bringing the kingdom and its righteousness. So when we turn back to what Jesus is teaching in uh, Matthew chapter six, when he's, he's saying this about, look at the birds, look at the flowers. He's saying the birds don't own land. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, but they get fed. He says that the, the flowers don't operate to clothe themselves, but they're, they're robed in greater beauty than even the greatest king, King Solomon. And so he's bringing these ideas to bear, and he says, listen, I don't want you thinking about food and drinking clothing. Your, your Father in heaven knows that you need these things. He says, and listen, the Gentiles seek after these things. Notice that he did not say sinners seek after these things. He says Gentiles. In other words, at this point, as when Jesus is giving this sermon, at this point, the Gentile nations are not yet part of God's chosen people. He's selected one nation to be his people. Now, at the end of Matthew, he'll send out his apostles and say, go and make disciples of all the nations so they can all be part of God's holy people. But at this point, he's saying, if you live this way, if you live focused on how do I work my land? How do I build my business? How do I grow my retirement account? How do I, you know, make sure my home equity grows? If that's my whole focus, it's not sinful. God knows you need those things, but you're living like the people who don't have a special calling from God to be kings and rulers, to be the ones bringing his justice and his mercy and his goodness into the world. Those who have that calling, God says, I myself will provide for them. I will be their inheritance. Don't worry about those things. Focus on the kingdom, seek after justice, and then all these other things, I will add them to you. So Jesus is coming at this point, and he's inviting us not just to not worry about the things that the world worries about, but to accept that we have a greater calling and a greater opportunity available to us to make us a promise that if we would step into bringing his kingdom to the world around us, he will see to it that we are provided for. So here's what I want you to do for a moment this morning. I want you to close your eyes. This is not an altar call. This is just a thought experiment. I want you to close your eyes, though, and I want you to imagine for a moment. I want you to imagine the city where you live, the city of Montgomery or Wetumpka, Millbrook, Prattville, Pike Road, wherever is your community. Imagine it. Imagine as you're driving around in it and you're seeing what you see. You know what we see in our community. You know where there's brokenness. You know where there's goodness. You know where there's problems. You know where there's difficulties. See that city in your mind. And then here's what I want you to imagine. Imagine that God brought back all the greatest saints in history, brought them back from the dead, and sent them from heaven. I mean, the most wise, holy, good, faithful, prayer warrior saints of all the past ages. He put them and scattered them across the river region. I don't mean just 
a few of them in, in, in the government. Maybe there's a few in government, but they're scattered all over. They're in healthcare, they're in schools, they're in businesses, they're in neighborhoods and families and communities. Imagine that the great saints of the past are scattered throughout our city. God's brought them back from the dead, sent them from heaven with a mission to bring his kingdom in practical ways around them, to see where the needs are and to step into them and not focus on the things of this life, but to see how they could bring the kingdom of God. Do you think that the city would change? Can you imagine how it might look different? I mean, not overnight, but in a month, in six months, in some years, in a generation, how might these cities and this region look different if the great saints of God stepped in to places of influence all across it, hundreds of them, thousands of them, stepped into places of influence and began to focus on how can we bring the kingdom of God here and trust him to provide for us as we do it. Now open your eyes and look around. You are those saints. You are those saints. God has raised you up from the dead in Jesus Christ and he has sent you from heaven in the power of the Holy Spirit to be his kingdom agents, to seek his kingdom and his righteousness in the places of influence where he has placed you and he is offering you this opportunity. You know, I love how Jesus refers in this passage to his disciples as, oh, you of little faith. It's actually a compound word. It's you little faiths. I want to ask you this morning to just imagine for a moment that Jesus is not chastising you with that word. He's not saying, oh, you sinful person of little faith, look at all the time you spend worrying about money. You should stop that. What if he's not chastising you? What if he is inviting you into a bigger calling and a bigger purpose for your life than just taking care of your body every day, taking care of your life, taking care of your bank account, making sure it passes on to your children? What if he is promising you a bigger calling to bring his kingdom and that he'll provide everything needed if you'll step into that in just one little step one next right step. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about a big plan. But take the next right step towards justice, towards righteousness, towards goodness in our community and believe that God is going to provide in miraculous ways like he did for George Mueller and those 10,000 orphans. How much more he could do through Ken, oh, Ken of little faith. Oh, Fraser of little faith. God can do much more than we've budgeted or imagined if we will step into his kingdom calling. I invite you, as we respond to him in song today, to consider how you might surrender to his goodness and step into the amazing calling he's giving you to be the bringers of his kingdom and his righteousness.